So let's turn to John chapter 3. And once again, we will be focusing most of our attention on verse 16. Charles Spurgeon called it the gospel in miniature. I was just listening to a grand old uh, fiery Irish preacher named Ian Paisley. If you've ever heard him, you'll know why I'm calling him fiery. <laughs> uh, but Ian Paisley, uh, his description of this, he, would, he said, this is the summary of all scripture. But if you think about it, God giving his son because of his love for the world so that a lost world through believing in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It covers Genesis to Revelation. It really does. So, I hope that I do not need to apologize for spending a little extra time in this, at this pinnacle of Scripture. And if we were going on a hike in the mountains and we got to the top of the mountain, it wouldn't be like, oh, we're here. That's nice. Let's head back down. We want to look around and see everything that we can see from that lofty height. Last week, the message was called The View from Salvation Summit. I don't have any better title for this message. It's kind of going to be, in some ways, the same message preached again. But last week, we, we examined a number of different um, aspects of the whole plan of salvation. Uh, and then I said, we're, we're going to slow down after that and, and look at each of these individually. So today, we're going to look uh, in great detail and with, with great care simply at the love of God, which is the source of everything that follows in this wonderful passage of Scripture um, all the way from verses verse 16 through 21. So let's, uh, let's read those verses together. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. In fact, for context's sake, I'm going to go back to verse 14, um, because verse 16 begins with the word for, and that means it's connected with what has come before that. So let's look at verse 14. And Moses lifted up the serpent, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him, or the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now if you, if you want um, an, an exposition of that entire passage and show how all of that fits together in context, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. That was um, an example of how you take Scripture in its actual context. And, and so it, it would be like if we are having a conversation um, and someone happened to hear one little sentence out of that con- con- conversation and they maybe uh, had not seen the expressions on our faces, they had not seen the, the, uh, the passion or the, um, the inflections in our voices and they had not heard the words, they could take from that one little snippet something completely other than what it meant. So that's why I thought it was so important to exposit that whole section in order to properly understand verse 16. Now we're going to do something different. We're going to look at each of these concepts that are presented in this passage, but we're going to expand our contextual focus and look at um, the Old Testament and other writers in the New Testament and see how these individual concepts are brought out and amplified and how they are um, echoed in other scriptures. Now there's a danger in doing this too because you can take those other scriptures and you can take them out of context and you can try to use them to bolster something but we're on safe ground because we have already seen how the context flows and expresses God's whole redemptive plan his plan of salvation and so I'm going to be going elsewhere in the text, but it'll be more, more topical, but still expository, because it is taking us sequentially through the text and shedding the, shining the ambient light of the rest of Scripture on this same passage. So let's uh, look at the love of God, the reason for redemption. If it were not for the love of God... Redemption would be not would not be something we could talk about today. We're going to address this under seven headings, and if I don't, uh, if I uh, if I run short of time, I'll I'll stop in the middle. But first of all, we're going to look at the source of the love. And that is expressed in two words: for God. God is the source of this love. We're going to look at its summary. God so loved. In other words, God loved the world in this way. God so loved. Then we're going to look at the scope of the love. What was the scope? God so loved the world. We sung about the scope of God's love. About the... uh, the sky being a scroll and every tongue was a, a, a pen and that if, if we were, oh, I wish I could remember the words of that song, but nor could the scroll contain the whole if stretched from sky to sky. Literally the word, word world means cosmos. It means everything in the whole created order. 
God's love extends that far. And this is why. This is God's motivation to save out of the world. Then we're going to look at its sacrifice. Of course, the sacrifice is that he gave his only son, his one and only, his monogenes, his one-of-a-kind son, his sacrifice. And then we're going to look at its saints. When we're looking at love, we're going to look at its saints. The love of God does something really amazing in that it separates people unto God. And it places them in a group of people. It places them in a very privileged, gracious, um, unique thing called the church. And the church is very simply composed of the believing ones. When the Bible says whoever believes, it literally means the believing ones. It literally means the saints. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes that all those whom the love of God has penetrated their hearts and, and drawn them with cords, what is the result of that? Or, pardon me. And of course, their belief has to have an object. And so when we talk of love, we also talk of its Savior. The Savior is expressed in two words in Him. But whoever believes in Him. Think of those two words, in Him. You can believe about Him and not be saved. You can believe the historical data and not be saved. When you believe in Him, that salvation is certain. And we'll look at what that means using other scriptures. And finally, we'll look at, in relation to the love of God, we'll look at its security. If you, if you have this security, it makes anything in your life bearable. Because you know this, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You're passed from death to life. You're no longer an enemy. You're now seated at his table. And then you give thanks. So, let's begin at the beginning with God. The source of the love of God is, of course, God himself. You know, Scripture never begin, does not begin by defining God. It doesn't begin by justifying the theory that there is a God. It simply begins, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God is the source of all that is. And in a very special way, God is the source of love. Because he is more than just uh, the, the locus from which love emanates. He is love. It is actually one of the attributes of God. God is love. This God, who is a God of love, is the God of creation. He's a God who made every living creature and every mountain and every sea. 
And every man and woman, at least the year Adam and Eve, and of course all of the descendants that come from there. And when he originally made those things, he pronounced them good. That is the God who so loves the world. He made this world. He made it to give him glory and honor. And he loved this world. But he's also the God of the garden. He's a God who planted two trees. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The tree of independent, strident selfishness. And the serpent so presented that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in a way that it was desirable to make one wise, that it was good for food, that it was beautiful to look upon, and the serpent used all of those attributes of the tree to convince man to resign their dependency upon God, to tell them everything that they needed to know about themselves and about good and about evil, and try to grasp that for themselves. And when they bit into that fruit, they discovered that yes, they did know good and evil, but they, though they knew what was good, they had no power to do it. And though they knew what was evil, they had no power to stop doing it. It completely brought them into bondage. So the God of the garden, the God who made those trees, the God who gave Adam and Eve this choice to disobey Him or obey Him, to trust in Him or to seek wisdom for themselves. That is a God who loved this world. And it's the same God who cast them out of the garden and put cherubim to guard the entrance with flaming swords so that nobody could enter again and eat of that tree of life, which would have been freely available to them. But God did not shut up that tree of life. The life is available, the life is still there through Jesus Christ. Anyway, we need to understand that this is a God who has been betrayed by his creation, though it didn't surprise him one bit. It's this God that so loved the world. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. God is the source. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So there is tangible evidence. If we love, if we truly love in a pure spiritual way, that's what the word love is in this verse, the same as for God so agape the world. For let us love one another, let us agape one another. For agape is from God, and whoever agapes has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So you see what the love of God does. The love that is literally the essence of God it reaches out and stretches out. And when we are loved by God, and when we have His love in us, that love emanates from us to our brothers. And this is evidence. When you doubt your salvation, 
One of the questions you can ask is, do I have love for the brothers and sisters in Christ? It's a good test. It's a good gauge. In the psalm that we read today, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. It's another way of saying God is love. And in, in with that love is grace and compassion, or mercy and compassion. So God is the source. Let's remember that. God is the source, not only of agape love, but about every, every kind of love. God is the source of, I was just going to say, God is the source of brotherly love. And I, I, no, they weren't fighting. Okay. Um, God, God is really the source of, of everything. Everything that he made, he made, everything in this world was originally good. And it's only sin that has messed it up. Even sexual love, God is the author of that. It is pure in its right context. But we have, we have defiled it. So, the source is God. Its summary is that he's so loved. In other words, he loved the world in this way. I stressed last week that it is not really um, expressing the emotional intensity of the love, but the demonstration of the love. This is the kind of love God gave to us. And 1 John 4, verse 9, I'm going to quote another of John's writings. It says, In this is was the love of God made manifest. Or God so loved the world like this, that God sent his only son into the world so that we could live through him. That is the summary. That is, that is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how God loved the world. That's the summary. So we've got a little summary. We've got the source. We've got the summary of God's love. In the Psalm, Psalm 103, I'm just going to continue. It says this. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. How did God love the world? Doesn't mean that he's never angry at us. Oh boy, he gets upset with us. And he disciplines us as a father disciplines his child. But if we are his children, listen to this, he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. You realize that if Christ had not gone to the cross, that God could not justly pardon us. Can you think of a judge who would pardon a murderer without that crime having been paid for in some way? If he would just say, oh, you killed someone? Not such a big deal. I'm going to let you off on that one. That, God, that judge would be a miserable uh, distortion of justice. But God is not only just, as we learn in Romans chapter 3, but he is also the justifier of sinful men. He is just and the justifier. And the only way he can do this is through the gift. So God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way. 
Now let's look at the scope. What is meant by the world? Well, it does mean the cosmos. It does mean, I mean, the, lit, the simplest meaning of it is everything in the created order. When God made it all, it was all good. He loved the whole world. He loved Adam and Eve. He loved all the animals. He loved people, of course, in a special way because people were created in his image. In his image and in his likeness. He had communion and communication. He spoke and walked and talked with his, the crown jewel of his creation with people. In Matthew chapter 5, verse, verses 4 to 3 to 46, it says, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, you have, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see there, God commands us to love not just our friends, but to love our enemies. Because this is the scope of God's love. When he so loved the world, he wasn't limiting his love only to people who somehow gave, um, gave some kind of loving response to him. When he loved the world, he loved his enemies. Because even the most righteous man or woman on this world, because of sin and because of the wickedness bound up in their heart, was an enemy of God. So when God loved the world, he loved sinners. Now did he love every sinner in such a way that every sinner would be saved? No. And he always knew that some would reject him. And he always knew that his, that though some would hear and some would understand that some would reject him. And he always knew who they were. And in a very strange paradox, he had always known whom he will save. Not just known that they would one day choose him, but he has always known them in such a way that he has chosen them beforehand. So there's this universal love for the entire creation and yet it is narrowed in and focused upon these that he intends to save out of the world. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 describes some of the people God loves. And at first, it doesn't sound like he loves them at all. Listen to this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, basically God's saying, my doors are closed to people like this. How can God love sinners? How can God love the world and yet say, 
If that's your nature, I don't want anything to do with you. Read on. And such were some of you. He's talking to Christians. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were, not you will be if you're, if you're good enough, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So when God loves the world, it is very clear that much of the world does not love God. In fact, nobody in the world loves God until God does a work of grace and he reaches down and he enters this, the dark world of idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves and greedy and drunkards and revilers and he washes them, he sanctifies them and he justifies them. How can he do that and be a just God? God's world is his whole creation. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. You see, those di directions are limitless. As high as the heavens is above, as the, uh, as above the earth, as far as the east is from the west. God's love is limitless, but it is very focused. And where is its focus? His steadfast love towards those who fear him. When we tremble at the word of God, when we hear the message of his holiness, and it causes us to tremble, and we're like the, the people waiting for Moses to come down from the, the mountain, and he's got the glory of the Lord on his face, and they're afraid of him, and he has to veil his face, and they don't want, they don't want him to come near because they think they'll die because of the glory of God. We need to remember who God is, and that fear, that terror fear, is a very real prerequisite to salvation. Because if we don't understand God's holiness, there is no way we are ever going to be able to enter into his mercy. There's no way we are ever going to understand that the only way he could bring us safely into his presence is through a mediator. Even when Moses looked upon the rock, looked upon the, the, the back of the Lord, God had to provide a cleft in the rock to shield him lest he be consumed by the glory. God's steadfast love is toward those who fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And maybe you're here and that's all you know so far is fear. Maybe you tremble. Maybe you tremble at the word of God. That might not seem like a very good place, but it is a very good place if you do the right thing with that fear. So the reason that God could love those who fear him, even though they were still in sin, is that there was a sacrifice made. There was provision made. 
There was justice satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ for sin. That he gave his only begotten son, the sacrifice of the love of God. That he gave his only son. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's from 1 John 4 verse 10. I know that I've explained the word propitiation before. But we really have to to grasp this. God is as perfect in his wrath as he is, is in his love. God is, present tense, angry at the wicked every day. And God will be just in punishing unbelieving men and women for all eternity in hell's torment. God will be utterly just in doing that. So how can he be just in pardoning men? It is because when he gave his son, when he gave his sacrifice, he became the propitiation for our sins. He became what was necessary in order to turn God's wrath away from us. And as he hung on the cross and pled, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is when the wrath of God was satisfied, not in destroying his entire creation and starting all over again, but in willingly, freely giving his own son, who willingly, freely gave himself to be the propitiation, to be the turning away of wrath for our sin. What love. What love. And even as the wrath of God was visited upon the one who became a curse for us, His love was demonstrated to us. This is love. Not that we loved him, but that that he loved us and sent his son to bear his wrath for our sins. This was not child abuse. Jesus did not go kicking and screaming to the cross. It was hard for him. If it's possible, if there's another way, Lord, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Remember, he knew no sin. What agony that he who knew no sin was about to become sin for us, was about to become the curse for us, was about to become our propitiation. This is the sacrifice of the love of God. Now let's look at the saints. That whoever believes, that all the believing ones will be saved. Again, in our, just following through, in Psalm 103, in verse 13 it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. 
He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. All of that is talking about God's saints. The people who are God's children, who fear him, who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. There's another word for those people That is his saints. Now, there are saints in the Old Testament. There are saints in the New Testament. And I will tell you one thing. If any of them were relying upon their own righteousness, and were thinking that the way to earn God's favor is perfect performance of these things, those so-called saints would be bitterly disappointed in the end. Because it is not by works of righteousness which we have done. It never has been. But according to his mercy that he saves us. Listen to this. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children, to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and those who do his commandments. It's God's righteousness that is imputed to us. We cannot look to ourselves for this righteousness. We must look to the provision of God. We must look to the atonement for our sin. We must look as the Israelites look to the serpent lifted up on the pole in order to be healed. We must look and believe and live. At the very end of John chapter 3, I want you to hear this. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Do you see any separation there between belief and obedience? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. You see what happens? People who believe the Son obey the Son. Not perfectly. But our new nature desires God. Desires His favor. Desires His presence. And you know, we even desire His light. We come to church on on Sunday knowing that our sin is going to be exposed in some way as the Word of God is proclaimed. And you know what? We desire that. We want that because we know that that sin, though grievous to God, is paid for. We know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We know that we are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified. And we want to come into that light and confess that sin. Not to live in it, and spurn the nature and spurn the grace that God has given us. So there's this seeming paradox that we are saints, that we are righteous, that we are accepted in the beloved, that 
everything has been provided for us in Christ, and yet we still sin. And this is because of the lingering sin nature that will not be eradicated until we either die and are risen again, or we are translated to see him face to face. Then all of these things will be no more. And it will be, we will be create, raised again incorruptible. <clears throat> well, let's, as we're talking about all the different elements of the love of God, let's talk about its Savior. Expressed in the words in Him. Whoever believes in Him. I don't want to undermine or miss the importance of the word believes. But I said it is in this verse, the emphasis is not so much in the initiative of believing, but it is rather in the fact of belief. Those who believe in Jesus, the believing ones, will not perish. But this, this faith, it, it clearly has an object. The object is the only begotten Son of God. It is the Son whom God gave. It is a Son who God gave and who gave Himself as a ransom for many. It's a singular person of Jesus Christ. There is no other object of salvation. Well, what does it mean to believe in him? I'm going to go to another passage. And this passage, at least nine times, explains what is available and what is normal for a believer in Jesus. I want you to listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Maybe even turn there if you like. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. It's the first thing. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Listen, do you have a problem with the biblical doctrine of election? What does it say right here? He chose us, the believing ones, in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. That is his ultimate goal. And... I know, I know that I'm not holy and blameless before Him. But I know that in Christ I am holy and blameless before Him. And I know that one day I will be like Christ in, in, in that I will see Him as He is and I will be transformed. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. He predestined us. This, he pre-planned this. This was part of His sovereign decree. To the praise of His glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of this will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So his purpose is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and earth. Whoever believes in him, you see what opens up for those who believe in him. All of these blessings in Christ, this, the election, the choosing, the redemption, the purpose of God, in him we have obtained an inheritance. This is not pie in the sky, by and by, it's steak on the plate while you wait. It's right here, right now, this inheritance begins. We're not in the fullness of it, but we know that it is there. We can claim that justified and that glorified as present reality as far as God is concerned, it's done. In him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now this is Paul, he's talking as, a, as an apostle and as one of the Jews. And you might, be, you might say, hmm, well I guess maybe that's only a special class of people that receive all of those things in Christ. No, no, no. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the, whole, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Whoever believes in him. You believe in Jesus, you lack nothing. You have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away. What a wonderful Savior. Everything we need is provided in Him. And He's even given us this letter, this love letter, that contains everything we need for life and godliness. Perfect correction for our sin. Perfect comfort for our despair. And this book is alive because the one who gave it, the one who spoke it, the one who breathed it is alive. And when we believe in him, he opens his book to us. And he shows us himself. Let's finish with his security. The, love, the security of the love of God. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. This is not should in the, in the, in the sense that whoever believes might not perish. I mean, they could fall off the wagon and then they might perish. No, this is the logical flow of this is that whoever believes in him has everlasting life. The perishing thing, the destruction thing, that's gone. 
Just some scriptures to sum up. Romans 8, 31 to 39. You know it well. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that's this Savior, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. You see, you can't condemn God and call him unjust because Christ died. Christ paid as one of us for our sins. It is God who, Christ, it is God who justifies. Who, uh, where, where was I here? Uh, Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, including death, including being slaughtered for Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nothing can separate us from this love. It, this love is secure. Close, I'm going to finish with John's writings in John, 1 John 4, verses 15 to 20. Whoever confesses Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. You have a confessional belief, a heart belief that Jesus is the Son of God. God lives in you and you in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So there's the test. Is that love a one-way kind of thing? Do you have some conception of God that he's just pouring his love toward you and he's overlooking all of your sin, but he's doing it in such a way that he wouldn't change you no matter what, he's happy with you no matter what you do? No, God's love is going to turn into your love. By this, but by this his love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Do you have confidence? As you await the day of judgment, because it's appointed to man once to die. And after this, the judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in the world. There's that word world again. We are in the world, aren't we? We see it, we touch it, we smell it. It's all around us. God so loved the world, but not in such a way that this whole world with all of its sin, is going to be redeemed. But he's calling people who are in the world, and he's calling people out of the world to save them. There is no fear in love, and 
Here's where I want to end. There is no fear in love. Now we talked about God having compassion and steadfast love toward those who fear him. That's where it begins. But when you look to the cross, and when you see the wrath of God for your sin being satisfied upon his only son, and you see the compassion of Jesus as his blood is poured out, You hear him cry out, Father, forgive them. You hear him cry out, it is finished. And you understand that that blood was shed for you. That fear of terror and of the judgment of God vanishes away and is replaced with, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So we complete the circle. God is the source. We love because he first loved us. We didn't start out seeking after God. There's none that seeks after God. But God seeks after and pursues wretched, rebellious sinners in order to save them. Are you living in fear of the judgment of God? Even now, God has compassion on you. And the response of a believing heart is to Confess, acknowledge sin, to turn from it, and to trust in the provision that God has given in Jesus Christ. And this, is, this transforms our lives. We love. We love because he first loved us. We're different because he loved us. We don't stay the same. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing passage from your word and Lord we literally can't avoid your love as we read through both the Old and the New Testament it's everywhere we thank you for pouring it out for us and Lord I pray that there would be work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts today you give us faith to believe God, that we would indeed be assured that there is no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. We're dismissed for...